Welcome to Visionaries. I'm your host, Jacob Wolf, and I'm joined today by Prem Thodamkara from my team, who we are doing something a little bit different today. Instead of a normal episode, interview episode, we got thrown off a little bit by the holidays in terms of scheduling. So rather than do nothing at all, we figured that it would be wise to do an episode talking about sort of some of the bigger industry trends that we're seeing out there right now, specific to esports. And so we spent some time over the past week looking at some of the interviews we've done over the past four months and finding sort of the most relevant things to talk about. We've taken a couple different audience questions from Twitter as well. So thank you for the people that have submitted those in the thread. And we'll be back on Friday with a normal episode of Visionaries with Anthony Fantano, the very beloved, I feel like beloved or or very much hated uh, music reviewer. It depends on who, who you are. If you're Drake, you hate him. But if you're it, most it music It depends fans, on the day, like dude. Like, yeah. <laughs> I love him when he reviews my favorite album well. I hate him when he reviews this other album I like badly, even though it's probably a bad album. Yeah, we, uh, we're going to have Fantano on. I think that will be really interesting. But today, you know, we wanted to dive into sort of the broader discussion about esports. If you've listened to this show... For any meaningful amount of time, you know, whether it be our very early interview with Atrioc, our more recent interview with Ben Goldhaber. Broadly, there's certainly an industry shift when it comes to online entertainment that's been happening, I would say, probably over the past three years. But now, sort of with people going back to their regular routines, I think it's more felt in 2022. The data shows that it's more felt in 2022. And, you know, before we really dive into it, I do just want to say, as we've gotten better listenership and things have continued to grow for us month over month first of all thank you all for listening much appreciated second of all i do want to put out a little bit of a call to action for apple podcast reviews you know to, for full transparency we we really do want to grow on apple Podcasts, and one of the easiest ways to get featured on apple Podcasts is to have people reviewing the show and saying that they like the show you know we get a ton of private feedback about the show that's very positive from a lot of the listeners so if you are listening to this please please go write a review on Apple Podcasts. Even if you listen on another platform, it is helpful. I'm sure we'll reach out to some people who give us that feedback privately too, but that is really helpful to the show and we would greatly appreciate it. And lastly, on the transparency level, we are very blessed that about 70 to 80% of our audience listens to advertisements. So thank you very much. But if you are skipping ads in this podcast, please stop. We are an indie <laughs> podcaster and the best way to keep us afloat you know, this is a uh, to date. We are a bootstrapped company and of my funds alone. I've said that before on this show. We are doing our best here. Um, we've had a pretty, pretty good year, especially compared to some of the other people doing gaming media. But we want to continue to bring this show. We are not some massive corporation. We're still a very much a small team, scrappy team working to build kind of all our revenue verticals and streams. So if you're listening to this, you're hearing me talk about this. Please listen to the ads. I know that some of them can be annoying. That's okay. We don't hand handpick all of them. I know some of them are frustrating, but it is really helpful. It, you know, it's helpful for a lot of different reasons. It's helpful for us to go find advertisers we like and be able to show them that how many people are engaged with the show. It's helpful for just in the short term us getting paid out for a portion of those, those ad listens as well. So, yeah, transparently figured we owe it to you all. Please listen to the ads. It's it's really helpful. But many people already do. So if you're one of those people, we thank you for already doing so. If you're not one of those people. Please do it. Anywho, yeah, so we wanted to have a bigger discussion about esports as a whole. 
we've put together sort of a short line outline we're going to be working through uh, on this show. We've taken the audience questions. We have the clips that will be sort of interspersing throughout all of this. But I think, you know, thinking about this discussion, you know, as a journalist in Prime, I'd, I'd love as not a journalist your feedback on this. As a journalist, I, I constantly kind of find myself in this position of like having to be the bearer of bad news. I've been this way for a long time throughout my career, you know, like thinking about, I think now we understand kind of the economic viability or lack thereof of a lot of the like franchised esports leagues, like the League of Legends Championship Series and League of Legends European Championship, the Overwatch League and the Call of Duty League. You know, we get now why those things don't work, but I was on the record six years ago saying those things wouldn't work without some pretty significant changes. And what do you know? I was right. And I'm not saying that to tap myself on the back, but more so to say that like when I speak up, I think a lot of people conflate kind of my like analysis and critical opinion for what my passion is. You know, I am a very passionate person about esports. I like paid my own way, didn't ask for a press credential or anything to the League of Legends World Championship semifinals about a month ago. And it was great. I had a good time as a fan enjoyable experience and i would love to go to any major esports event as a fan and just enjoy it but at the same time you know in my role as a journalist and a reporter i just gotta call balls and strikes and you know frequently like i'm met with this like you know why are you talking about it if no one cares or why why this or why that and it's like well because somebody's got to say it and i think unfortunately passion economy in in esports often outweighs sort of the logic economy yeah. Um, so I'd love to get kind of your feedback on that prime as not a journalist, because I, I know you've been kind of in some more conversations, too. I mean, I, I am someone who's who's followed esports for. God, like. 14 years now, which feels crazy to me that almost half my life I've been paying attention to esports for the last five, six years. I've been. On this constant seesaw of being both bearish and bullish on on the state of esports because like i think that the the fortnite boom in 2017 and 2018 led a lot of people to being very bullish thinking that okay this is this is finally here it's here to stay and it's here to keep growing and the entire time i'm sitting there thinking like this is not that's not how this is going to work this audience is primarily like under 18 they are not active in esports outside of watching fortnite and as soon as fortnite stops being the hot thing they're gonna move on they're gonna leave they're gonna do something else and i think that yeah i'm i'm right again on this one like when when yuzu put out their initial reports on on the valuation of esports back in i think that was 2018 those numbers looked ridiculous those numbers seemed deeply inflated. And I think now, especially seeing more of this, these really thorough analyses of, of the, the economic state of the industry, it's clear that those reports, because Newzu gave it this, this veil of legitimacy, led to an investment bubble that in the last year and a half, two years, has slowly and steadily burst. And we're seeing that this this year with with the with a recent Deloitte study that I'm sure we'll we'll talk about in a bit. Yeah, to sort of for those maybe not familiar with the news 
data he's talking about, you know, there's a, a data reporting firm called Nuzu that every year puts out sort of this like state of esports report. I don't even know what to call it. It is it is a study, I suppose, but it's constantly, you know, Ben Goldhaber referenced it on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. It's like, you know, 250 million people are actively engaged with esports. And it's like, I, there's not much accountability for how that data firm sort of gets its numbers. And I think that's the most dangerous thing. You know, I think back when we think about sort of the speculative nature of people talking about esports and like, you know, shit happens, things change. But nonetheless, I think back to like the Morgan Stanley report, which is this report that was like definitely I've heard allegations it was commissioned by Activision Blizzard. I'm not making those myself, but, you know, some people have certainly said that. But, you know, when Activision Blizzard was on the trail, Bobby Kotick and Nate Nancer and everyone else, they were on the trail going to pitch all these big investors like the the Kraft family who owned the New England Patriots and the Kroenke family who owned the Los Angeles Rams and all of these big sports guys about buying into the Overwatch League, you know, a not even proven product in any sort of meaningful way. They, you know, Blizzard had no first party ran system before that. There was this report that Morgan Stanley, an independent firm, put together in which, like, it, and it leaked out very interestingly. I'll put it that way. Like, how that started sh- being shared as like proof of concept was kind of wild to me. And you know, uh, looking at it now, all these years later, it said that that the Overwatch League alone could garner a hundred million dollars in revenue with an average regular season viewership of seventy two thousand people for regular season games and seven point seven million people for playoffs. And what's funny about that is that you look now and after the news that came out last summer in 2021 that Activision Blizzard had been allegedly, according to the California Civil Rights Department, withholding information around discrimination and sexual abuse within their company from their shareholders and also that they had been, you know, executives to sort of turn a blind eye to much of this. The Overwatch League has zero sponsors. And they're coming up on the renewal of a rights deal that they've had with YouTube. And we've heard nothing about it. Nothing. We are a month from it expiring. We've heard nothing. And it to think that, like, you know, five years ago, people were saying this thing could make $100 million every single year is nuts. <laughs> and there's a graph in that specific report that it's like, you know, it, it like it basically says here are all the different outcomes. And it's like it's a niche following. And this is kind of where I think we're at right now. Hard care. Hardcore gamers watch esports. Casual gamers do not. Ad licensing and sponsorship dollars flow towards esports to connect with millennial males. I think that's kind of true. But one of the other ones is e- it's a fad. Esports is a fad that fails to grow. Overwatch franchise deteriorates. Activision Blizzard is not able to own distribution. And then there are the positive sides there too. But I think we're kind of somewhere in the middle of that, more frankly. That, like, yeah, the hardest core of gamers are the people that are actively engaged with esports. But I think. To your point about Nuzu, the, the number of those people is vastly overestimated. Um, and and truly, you know, we're not just talking. People, like, will say, you know, people will say, like, oh, like, I, I mean, this happened today on Twitter when we were talking about this episode. But, like, people will say, oh, well, you know, viewership's up, 
year over year on the Counter-Strike majors and on, you know, the League of Legends World Championship. And it's like, that's totally not the point. These are the tentpole events. How many people watch the Super Bowl socially that do not give a rat's ass about the NFL the other seven months that it takes place? There is a lot of those people. And it's like, so using sort of the outliers as the, oh, the growth is crazy, is a recipe for disaster. I feel like that's where we're at. I think the the one thing that Newzoo gave us that to this day is still a really good kind of metric that we can use is how we define gamers. Like, totally disregarding everything else they've done statistically, Newzoo did give us a really clear way to define the the ultra casual gamers who they're playing like a game on their phone on the toilet a couple times a day and that's it but then you get all the way into the enthusiast gamer and these are the people that in theory are supposed to be the ones that are engaged with esports they're watching multiple hours a week they're playing games they're spending a lot of money every year on on games equipment whatever the problem is we've it feels like we've we've constantly broadened how we define that enthusiast and that's what what a lot of these companies are are banking on that the this definition for an enthusiast and i think if memory serves the the original definition was that they have to be engaging with gaming content more than 3 hours a week they have to be playing games for more than 3 hours a week and they're spending over $3000 a year on gaming stuff whether that's twitch subs games consoles you know gaming equipment but the problem is that is such a like realistically that's a tiny fraction of gamers that is such a small small subset of all of the gamers and the vast majority of the people don't care nearly that much they're not that interested it's it's the super bowl idea like I I watch I watch CS:GO majors. I don't play the game. I don't really engage with the game outside of watching the majors. I the same is true of League nowadays where I used to be someone who watched it a lot, played it a lot. I, I don't have the time anymore. I don't have I don't have the kind of mental bandwidth to be following these massive leagues. I or, I already follow the NBA too closely. And I don't know how I manage that shit. It's for for any esport to succeed, they have to figure out how to engage more than just that enthusiast audience. And more often than not, we just point at that and say, okay, we can get a good conversion rate from that group. I I I would promise you, Blizzard looked at that group and said, okay, we can expand how we define it. We can we can reduce the the barrier of entry. Maybe it's not three thousand dollars a year. Maybe it's like five hundred. But then they very likely said, "Okay, we can get a a higher than market average of conversion on that group. If if the average conversion is five percent, we can get eight and a half." And that's just not true. You're gonna have to do so much heavy lifting to to make that happen. Truly the pipeline for someone to be a hardcore esports fan, the type of person that buys a jersey for Cloud9 or TSM or, you know, whatever Overwatch League or Call of Duty League team, etc. To become one of those people, 
I think you have to go through a series of steps, and that is one: Do you play whatever game you're a fan of them in? You know, Apex Legends, League of Legends, Super Smash Brothers, whatever. Do you spend a exorbitant amount of hours playing that game, rather than just like a very casual surface level? Then, do you spend a copious amount of hours watching that game, watching other people play that game? And then the last part: How do you identify fandom? You know, I know something that we have on our our outline here is talking about you know, sort of the the parallels between traditional sports teams and esports teams. I do want to get to that a little bit later. But I I think that we have vastly underestimated how much time it takes to be an esports fan, a truly engaged esports fan. You know, Ben, when he was on the show, had that anecdote of, like, meeting somebody that claimed to be a, a huge Sentinels fan and them saying that, like, they weren't familiar, that, like, it was a big deal that Shroud was coming to play for Sentinels and Valorant. And it's like, yeah, because the person just doesn't have time to, like, get the whole context there. They've not, you know, been watching Counter-Strike for eight years to understand how big of a deal it was when Shroud left streaming to go play Cloud Nine, or play for Cloud9 and Counter-Strike back then, and then went back to streaming, and went to Mixer, and, and did all these things. They just don't have the time, and I don't blame them. It is a much bigger time commitment than traditional sports. It's a much bigger time commitment than watching, and this is what we're about to dive into, watching creators. Right. And, and, you know, sort of keeping up with creators as celebrities, et cetera, which is where the viewership is going. And I think, you know, we at Overcome here have made an active decision to shy away from hardcore esports. I, I didn't want to establish an, an esports media company that's covering every single beat of esports because I worked for one and it was unsuccessful. And part of the reason it was unsuccessful is because, like, this audience doesn't have the time. Like, there's because, like, the time they would be reading or watching content about esports, they're playing the games because they have to keep a brush or they just have a life, which is like totally understandable. And so the amount of time commitment it takes to be a hardcore esports fan is ungodly. I don't think there's a solution to that either, unfortunately. I think it's more than just the time, though. Like, realistically, the the issue that that a lot of esports runs into, and I'm sure you've you've run into this as well. We are a chronically online group of people we are all on twitter we're all on on some sort of social media somewhere if it's not twitter it's reddit and for the most part that's where we get our news the news is really quick to to consume and then you're done with it you might have a a thought you you're gonna you know reply or retweet or whatever but the vast majority of gamers they're not gonna go in and and look for a written article that that dives into the nuances of of some piece of news there's there's no reason for us to do it because that has all been done already on twitter to to the vast majority of gamers we see it we'll we'll click the thread there will be a couple of tweets underneath it that that have the explanation and then we're done we yep. that's it that's the entire engagement and we move on yep exactly And so the next question I wanted to go through is truly, where has this audience gone? And I think that it's two answers to that, in my opinion, anecdotally. I think, one, the the audience has either aged out of 
the the sort of the category, right? They have grown up. They now have families. They have other priorities in their lives. They can't commit 25 hours a week to play League of Legends, watch League of Legends content, keep up with sort of the chronically online Twitter, Reddit, etc. posts. They've moved on. I've met a lot of people like that over the past couple of years who just like, yeah, man, like I just don't have time for this anymore. And like I, I would, you know, I'd roll up to an event if it was in my area because I still like have some love and passion for it. But at the same time, like I don't have time to be a brash like in the news and like participate in something like Juke or read, you know, any of the smaller niche esports websites that haven't expanded to other things. I just don't have time, you know, like even working at at dot esports, which was like at one point the biggest esports website on the Internet, like a million plus views back in the day, which was a huge deal to us. Like dot esports now is like a 17, 18 million viewer website every single month. And you know why? Because they get a ton of traffic from Google and it's not about esports. It's people searching Marvel Snap decks or Pokemon stats or any of that. And they've got a really like compliment to them, a really robust sort of flywheel to produce that sort of content but that's what's getting them traffic not the like hard timey esports stuff other than you know when a, something blows up and it goes you know absolute absolutely ballistic and a bunch of people read it but like yeah and it's it's all seo focused and so i think like you know uh, under, understanding that i think the audience has just moved on and the second part of that i want to say too is i think that for a certain young audience and we do have a clip relevant to this for a certain young audience call it late millennials and all of gen z i think they truly need to feel personally connected to people on the internet even people who are famous even people who are celebrities it's not really easy with esports players a lot of them are very bland you know they are very passionate very driven about competing in their game and very few of them are sort of in entertainers basically the ones that are go on to be successful content creators and make a ton more money doing that, which is something we're going to talk about a little later. But truly, I think a lot of that audience just like they're not like they're esports lapsed esports fans who moved on. I would say a lot of them are just esports fans who never were. Like they just aren't esports fans altogether, right? Like they just they, they're creator fans, and and I think that there's a bigger problem to talk about, and we could spend an hour on this, and I don't want to. That with the conflation of the word esports and people lumping in like gaming entertainment with it and everything else, it's not the same. The audiences are not the same. The creator creator audience is massive. The amount of people that watch XUC or Hassan Piker or Amaranth or any of the others, that is a huge number. Crazy number. That is not esports. If you're an advertiser or a you know a business owner looking at this industry listening to this, and I've heard from some of those people that do, that is not esports. That is not anything to do with it. They could not be totally two totally different segments. So don't don't think ill of the creator economy because esports has rubbed you wrong. And also realize before you spend your money on sort of esports, the audience overlap between that and creators is practically non-existent. I think, and and you know, even us, we've spent more spent more time working on creator economy stuff because it's way more valuable to us and way more valuable to the audience where the audience is. is. And there's interesting stories to be told there, too. I'm very passionate about that. So we're going to play a clip here. This is from one of our first episodes of Visionaries, I believe episode number two, which was with Atrioc. For context of those listening who may not be familiar with him, Atrioc is a now he is the co-founder of Offbrand, which is a creative studio creating events and other types of content for 
creators alongside uh, Ludwig and Nick Allen and Stans. Uh, Ludwig and Stans have also been on the show before. And previously, Atrioc is, or previously, Atrioc was an employee at Twitch and also at NVIDIA, where he was working at the time when we did this podcast, but he has since resigned to focus solely on creation or content creation of his own and also off brand. And I want to just kind of preface with this clip a little bit. We were talking about him seeing the shift from esports to creators during his time at Twitch. And so here's the clip. When I left, they were still big on the whole Twitch esports. Let's build the league for Rocket League. Let's, you know, let's really build an esports infrastructure where Twitch is actually making the leagues for these companies. And that has pivoted way more to Twitch rivals where they just make fun streamer friendly content where it's more about the personalities and, and that kind of thing. So, but that was after I left. So I, I don't know. I think the, the beginning seeds were there. I definitely saw it though, because I was a consumer of Twitch massively. I watched esports and streamers all the time. And, and I just started to notice that more and more the, the big numbers would come from things that were totally unrelated to esports. And like, and it was just more fun to watch sometimes. You'd, 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 be get, you'd, you'd find a streamer and you'd actually like watching him and you'd come back to him week after week. Him or her week after. So in that clip, he was talking about why people would not sub and, mo- and monetize esports streams. And, you know, I have a feeling, again, anecdotally, that a lot of sort of that younger generation, the audience segment that a lot of these things sort of cater to, feel certain ways about corporations. And so when they see like the Riot Games channel, I don't think they want to subscribe to it. There's no benefit. Like maybe you'll get a special emote or whatever, but I don't think anyone cares. I think when they're connected to a creator and it's said very explicitly, hey, to pay my rent this month, I need your subscription. I need your donation, right? And that's how a lot of these creators start is they're scrappy and not millionaires, right? That's like the people that are millionaires on that are Twitch streamers or big YouTubers is like a very fractional, tiny percentage. Even people who are very successful that we've had on the show, like Cutie Cinderella and others, not a millionaire, right? So like truly, truly, you know, it's important when that communication's there. I think that personal connection needs to be. It's... It's such a multifaceted issue because that holds true for your Riot Games, your your Activision Blizzard, where as a viewer, I'm just like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch the the big event of the year or or whatever big match is happening. I might every once in a while pop into into Twitch chat and and be a, a degenerate in there with them, but like there's no incentive. There's no real reason for me to, to pay in to get this thing that's already being given to me for free. It, it'd be like if I'm growing up having cable, why would I voluntarily give the cable company $5 when I'm already watching a Bulls game? Like There's, there's no reason to do that. If I have the service, I'm going to use it I'm not going to pay extra for it for no reason. The problem is that trickles down into your your smaller orgs. And like this is this is relevant today with with Smash. Like the Smash community if if you're not aware uh there was a a big tournament circuit that was running this year the Smash World Tour that today they announced that the final event of the year, the, the Smash World Tour finale in, I think, in L.A., uh, that's going to be in two weeks, or that was going to be in two weeks. It got canceled 
and the entirety of the 2023 iteration of this tour is canceled, as well as a handful of other events that that group was running. They're all canceled. That's not a big org. That's not Riot, the publisher, saying that you have to be involved. It's it's Video Game Bootcamp, VGBC, which is basically two brothers and a small team around them that run everything. For them, like, and, and to make it clear, they're not people who push you to try to sub, but they are always looking to be able to pay their rent, to be able to pay their bills. And so the, the kind of mentality around, around subbing to and, and paying in to, to watch these events that we get for free is really rough because it's, it's very binary. It's if I'm watching it and the entire experience is watching the event, I shouldn't need to pay in to, to watch it. If the event said, hey, to watch, it's a dollar. That would make so much money. But the, the, the structure to do that it doesn't exist. There's no way for an event to say, to, to have tickets like that on, on Twitch, YouTube, whatever. You'd have to build a whole new platform just for that. Yeah. And on that note, too, I just think we've conditioned this audience to expect free, premium content, free premium content. And they don't want anything else. And and if they do, they want, again, they want that candidness. The, I got to have your money, your subscription, your donation to pay my rent. And when you're a company, when you're a corporation, that's tough. And you got to be able to build that relationship. I mean, candidly, it's something we think about a lot. Like, we're, we're a small, scrappy group that's like, our YouTube channel and other things isn't labeled the Jacob Wolf YouTube channel. It's labeled by the company because we eventually want this to be a network that is multiple people, not just myself. But, you know, it is it is something I think about a lot, about being more of a personality, being a person, not just a news robot. Because the news robot, nobody cares about the news no robot. They care about Especially the in gaming. No one cares. Correct. You can't just be, you know, like a traditional sports reporter in my case and, and just like tweet the news like you got to have opinions people got to feel connected to you sure you may alienate some people when you say what you think but at the same time you got people that are stick, sticking along the ride and appreciate what you do and and that's really important i think that takes us into one of our first audience questions which is from declan mclaughlin uh from texerto which is what is the worst case scenario in the next decade for esports will these over bloated leagues fold no short answer no it's not a too big to fail thing, but in the same vein that I was saying, there's this bubble that's bursting. The the bubble that's bursting is is the overinflated value of esports leagues. But the esports leagues themselves will survive. They will continue to operate. The problem is where we are going to see some dialing back of of the amount of resources that could get puts into esports, like. I don't think anyone really publishes their numbers, but I'd, I'd go so far as to say that esports is a, a big loss. It's, it's, it's not something that's profitable, and the only reason that, that esports continues to, to exist is that it is a marketing tool and that sponsors can come in and, and put their branding on the broadcast, or in the case of things like League of Legends or Overwatch, they'll have 
you know, bespoke ads built into the game. But esports as, as a whole, the the overinflated, overbloated leagues, they'll survive. They'll just be dialed back. Correct. I think that we already are saying that. I think we're saying more broadly that esports leagues themselves are cutting marketing budgets. They're cutting their spend more broadly on broadcast. They're outsourcing to rather than building internal broadcast staffs. They're hiring younger and less experienced commentators to be able to pay them less. Truly, that's what that is. So when you see, you know, a big commentator play in the league for not bringing them back, like that's usually because they just didn't want to pay their asking price because there is more talent out there that are cheaper. It doesn't matter if they're subjectively better or not. And I think, you know, you, you, I know you've been like really passionate talking about this Deloitte report, but there was a, a Deloitte report recently also around European consumption of, of esports. And it was like the, the highly engaged number was basically half in 2022 compared to 2020 and 2021. And look like sort of every single, every single online form of entertainment is down. That's, yeah. that, that's just the case. Like people went back to work, people sort of reignited their social lives kind of, as the vaccines made our lives a little bit more regular than they were over the past two years, actually a lot more regular than they were over the past two years. But Frank, frankly, I, I do think that esports is taking sort of an even bigger hit. And, and you see that reflected in like, again, not the outliers, not the league of legends world championship or the overwatch league finals or whatever else you see it in the regular season viewership, like the normal games that are like relatively meaningless. That's where you're seeing this. Those people just, those numbers are down all across most of these leagues. The, the curious thing about the fact that the, the number, it went from 15% of an engaged audience in 2021 to uh, 8% in 22. And the, the curious thing about that to me is that even going into the, the pandemic, the growth was steady. It was relatively stable. I, I, if memory serves, it was like up two or three percent on on the the like highly engaged audience year over year for the last well this year not with not not included uh, for the last four or five years, and uh, people are realizing that a few things are happening. We're getting an oversaturation of esports, which. That's been a big issue for a lot of communities, but also, yeah, we're we're going back to our lives. Like, I miss events that normally I would have watched because I'm 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 going and doing things that I haven't been able to do in the last two years. It's, yeah, I, I esports is is in a, a really interesting place just because I think that. For the next year or so, we will continue to see these slightly depressed numbers. And I think that we're going to see a restructuring of a lot of leagues to provide more high-impact matches or, or you know, short seasons. Um, but until a lot of these companies realize how to kind of bridge the gap between regular season games where in a lot of communities they don't they literally don't matter until the last four weeks of the season and then these huge huge events that pull in tens of millions if not hundreds of millions of viewers around the world 
Yeah. And I think lastly, to sort of put a bow tie on this question for Declan, I think you're going to see publishers make decisions about whether they value esports as marketing, because that's ultimately what it is. It's what it started as. It's what it's going to end as. Or rather end, I, I say like basically where it's going to stay, where it's going to be sort of stable or whatever, at least for the time being. You know, I think it's a marketing device to market to the hardest core people of the game, the people that play it the most. And some amount of those people will see an advertisement for your game and play it more, spend more money on it, buy skins, whatever else they, you know, whatever they want, want to do. It is, the economics may not make total sense. They may not be super easy to trace, but at the end of the day, it does have some benefit. And so it's just going to go down to cost cutting. All yeah. these leagues, I think, will still exist. I do have a lot of questions about the Overwatch League and the Call of Duty League and if they will exist come 2024 after, you know, assuming Microsoft beats the charges and gets through regulators in the UK and, and uh, the EU and the US. Uh, if that happens and Microsoft is able to acquire Activision Blizzard and they have to make the decision whether they're keeping around the Overwatch League and Call of Duty League, I don't know. That's not, I don't think that's so much indicative of sort of esports as a broad whole. Rather, I think it's indicative of does Microsoft care about esports, right? It, to back to my point of like each sort of publisher has to make their decision. Historically, I would say no, Microsoft does not care about esports in any meaningful way. Certainly enough, not enough to spend like they, you know, if you compare their spend on Halo to the spend Activision Blizzard's been making in the esports industry the past five years, certainly nowhere close. But nonetheless, I do think that it will be a publisher case by case basis. When you see someone like Nintendo and the news that they did, uh, you know, shutting down the Smash World Tour today, um, clearly Nintendo does not care about esports in a meaningful way. It is not an important marketing vertical to them. They do not think it sells more copies to Super Smash Brothers in any meaningful way. They might be right about that, to be clear. Um, but at the same time, that's what it is. It's, it's truly what it is. It's marketing. It will stay around. I think it might grow significantly more down the line when there's like, you know, billions of gamers, not hundreds of millions of gamers. And, you know, therefore we're just doing a, a math game here, how a small percentage of a big number kind of thing. But I think like we're we're a little bit further down the line from that at the moment. I will sort of push back on the uh, Nintendo idea of them coming around ever. No, they won't. I don't I don't think they will either. Uh, no. Nintendo will never have to come around to even acknowledging the validity of of esports because the I, the vast vast majority like well over 90% of people who play anything Nintendo related don't care. Right. Uh, Nintendo's the ultimate like family friendly casual gamer experience. Everyone has experiences of well of, of at some point growing up playing Smash with your friends, and I'd be willing to bet a lot of those people don't care about Smash esports. They're they're not interested. They have fond memories of playing it with their friends. That's about it. The same yeah. is true of Pokemon and and Zelda, all the Legend of Zelda games. Like those games will move such massive units to huge audiences that. Even if 100% of all of the people involved in Nintendo-related esports all unilaterally say, we're not going to buy anything more from Nintendo, that's 
less than one percent of all of their profits. They they do not care. Correct. Yep. They they are the toilet gamer, the one that plays their Switch on the toilet, and uh, that person is very unlikely to convert to an esports fan in any meaningful way, uh, or vice versa. Sales are still good with or without. So the next question we had is from, and I believe it's Giancarlo Santos uh, at Moosh Rights or Mush Rights on Twitter. Uh, Will the unsustainable salary problem ever come to an end? If so, how? Oh, geez. Again, there's the bubble that was formed in 2017 where everything got overvalued. You had people like Ninja who were pulling in bajillion dollars every goddamn hour. And the moment that happened, you had a lot of players being like, okay, we, we also deserve, we deserve that. And it's just like, no, you don't (laughs) again. No one cares about esports in, in, in that like active way. People watched Ninja. Ninja got big because it wasn't esports. It was, it was Ninja to being Ninja. Like that was the entire core of, of the success of, of the, business entity that is Tyler Blevins. But the problem is all the publishers, especially the ones with or the 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 gamers, the ones with who are supported by the publishers, so your Riot gamers, your your uh, Overwatch players, things like that. They demanded it. They they forced the hand, so you had these superstar players and and you know, get that bag. You know, you have to get paid for for being skilled but it has come at the detriment of developmental leagues it's come at the detriment of new players where you a lot of teams will blow a good portion of their budget on one or two stars and then the the rest of your players get the scraps this only changes with a when when those large players realize that they are the problem here like the the budget cap doesn't change the amount of money that's going into these teams is not gonna just magically increase and and make it so everyone can get paid those superstar amounts that's not how the economics of esports work the moment you have players saying you know what i I will sacrifice some of my pay i won't live the moderately lavish lifestyle that some of these stars play star players live so that I can have my team invest more into developing out uh, a new talent and, and getting to a place where they can compete for a championship. Until that happens, no, the, uns- the unsustainable salary problem doesn't end, unfortunately. I do think we're saying it slightly correct. You know, it, it peaked out, in my opinion, in 2020. Because there was this narrative at the beginning of 2020 when the NBA and the NFL and other things went on pause. And more or less, the everybody looked around and were like, esports is going to be the next big thing. And there was a bunch of fundraising. You know, despite the economy having a very significantly significant downturn for most businesses in 2020, a lot of businesses struggled, you know, a lot of places, live entertainment, et cetera, like, didn't have customers anymore because everybody was quarantined for close to a year. You know, the esports side of that is everybody bought into that hype. And so 
as a result, people fundraised like crazy. These massive fundraising rounds, these esports teams raising investments. We're going to get into that in a little bit. But truly, you know, the money came in and the money that was being used to pay these exorbitant player salaries, you know, million plus dollar a year, two million plus dollar a year, in some cases, three plus million dollars a year in League of Legends, these crazy salaries relative to the revenues. It was other people's money. It was investor money. It wasn't sponsor money, which is revenue. It wasn't, you know, revenue share in any of the leagues, etc. It was just crazy investor money. And I think it simply boils down to that most esports teams have not figured out how to be meaningful other than to win. They don't know how to be relevant in their marketing other than to win, minus a handful like a hundred thieves and phase clan and others. Right. And you see them invested more in creators than you do in esports in most cases. Right. They, they rely on marketing in a totally different way than like sort of some of the hardcore esports teams like cloud nine, et cetera, or team liquid. Those teams have to win to, re- to remain relevant to the esports fan. And that means you got to pay for the best players in the market, which are very, very expensive. And so I do think that there's a minor correction here, but you're not going to see, and this is why, like, player unions, I'm very, op- or I'm pessimistic that a player, a real player union will ever form in esports. You'll have these associations or whatever that pop up. But when you start a player union, what happens is the top earners earn less, the bottom earners earn more, and everybody comes closer to the middle because you negotiate things like a salary cap. You negotiate things like a, you know, sort of a minimum salary that's pretty fair. And I don't see any of the major players that are competing in these games and making the most money, the Bjergsons of the world, etc. I don't see those people voluntarily going, yeah, you can slash my pay. Yeah. Great. I'll do it for the better good of my, my fellow peers. It, it's just not going to happen. And, and so I'm, I'm very pessimistic about, you know, I think it will naturally correct because the money's just not there to pay these people this anymore and they're just going to have to settle. But I, I don't like... You know, I don't foresee a world where uh, any of the top earners do anything for the greater good of their their peers that earn less. I want to I want to caveat all of this by saying this is also very uniquely a NA and EU issue from from what I can tell, simply by merit of the culture of, of esports here versus in China and Korea specifically, like in China and Korea, esports is enormous. That that bubble not bursting. That bubble is is just is made of lead, and it will keep growing. Those players are paid very well, and they will continue be to be played well, paid well, because of the massive cultural importance of esports there. But like here, it, the money is gonna go towards the content creators because that's what's where you can play your ads, and that is an ad money is king here. Yeah. And I, I think also the other point, too, is this is not so much the case. You know, somebody was asking me today about valuations regarding like European esports teams. Nationalism is a strong thing. We've seen like LEC valuations for the league European championship continue to go up. But that's because the teams that are buying them are creator led, mm-hmm. very national pride backed teams that have massive audiences. There's a region thing that doesn't exist in the United States. The Overwatch League proposition that you know the cities were going to get behind this big te- these big teams didn't work. 
worked. It was kind of cute for a little bit, but like, yeah, it just didn't work. Like no, nobody in New York and LA are like, yeah, go NYXL and LA gladiators. Like the people that do that are like a hundred people in a room, yeah. not like, you know, uh, millions of people in the city of New York city. You know, like it's just, it's just not how that works. Uh, we did have a clip though on this specific one that I wanted to play. And we just talk about it on a little bit which is from Harris Peskin. He was on one of the earlier episodes of Visionaries, episode, I believe, seven, actually, with Devin Nash, who's the former CEO of Counterwatch Gaming and now runs an ad agency that represents a bunch of folks. This is a really insightful clip. There's some jargon here we'll explain after. Harris is an attorney who represents almost all the big teams in North America at his law firm, ESG Law. So here's the clip. And for what it's worth, by the way, um, in... in Leagues like the English Premier League, like player salaries up until financial fair, uh, what's it called? Uh, fair financial fair spending, I think it was called. Or in 2010, they basically put in a cap which said you can't spend over your your soccer related revenues, right? Until mm-hmm. that was happening, you were seeing teams on on average spending somewhere like over the one to one ratio in terms of the player salaries, right? Like what you generally want to see in the way that it works in professional hockey, what will happen is you'll have a salary cap and that salary cap is equal to all the aggregate hockey related revenue divided by the 32 teams and then divided by 50 percent right so what you're saying is basically of this hockey related revenue players are going to get and that i'm sorry and that 50 percent gives you the salary cap midpoint and then you could spend up to 115 percent of that or less than 85 percent of that as the floor right so what ends up happening is there's basically what you have is a maximum of roughly 50 percent of the hockey-related revenue that team is generating to be spent on players. But when you have teams spending in excess of their one-to-one ratio in all of the revenue that they're generating, obviously it's not successful. And yeah. and, and yeah. I would also just caveat too that like we've seen teams fold before. I mean, there have been hockey teams that have folded before too. Like we saw the California Golden Seals in the 19... There's a big reference for anyone that's a hockey fan here. Uh, California Golden Seals folded in the 1970s, right? Like we've seen the Cleveland... I think it was the Barons, they folded as well. Like plenty of baseball teams have folded too. Just because there's a team folding, it doesn't spell doom and gloom for the industry. But what it does tell you is that, you know, there was no one interested in taking that spot and the industry does need to reform itself to get to a point where it is once again healthy. And Devin, you said this really well. Like it's a market of scarcity and sometimes people just want to have the, se- the sexy golf course on the street. And that's what they're looking for. And in times of recessions, that sexy golf course doesn't really matter too much, right? So yeah. it might just be tied to the overall economic health of, of the region. It's a really good clip. It is there is jargon there, but truly, you know, what Harris is talking about is the fact that, you know, in traditional sports, there are caps of how much you can pay. And that's because a lot of the player or you know, all of those sports leagues are unionized. And so that's a negotiated thing between player bodies and sports bodies. But he was talking about historically how, you know, you could only spend a certain amount of your revenue on and you had to use revenue, not investment, not owner's capital, not the money that your, you know, billionaire owner has sitting in his bank account to move over when you need it. You know, you can't use that money to pay for your player salaries. You have to be responsible. You have to spend only a portion of the revenue that you are making real dollars, money you're earning. That is not the case anymore. And that is a bigger part of the problem with esports. Is it's other people's money. It's investors' money. It, nobody's figured out the the revenue proposition at this point. It's it's why content works. It's why it's why it's it's always going to be well, maybe not always, but uh, right now, for the last few years and for the next few years, until esports figures out how to build proper pipelines to to creating profitable events, 
it will always be a better investment for for an investor to to pay an influencer. That influencer will always move more units. Yep. Yeah, it's true. And it, it harkens back to, you know, what Devin Devin was quoted in a Dexardo article where he was talking specifically about that and how like a you know, a sponsor did a a computer manufacturer sponsor did a period or did a test testing sort of a, a long term partnership with an esports team and then they did it with an influencer and it was like hundreds of times the amount of units sold in terms of actual computer sales. And that harkens back to I think people want that personal connection. Yeah. But also people also, you know, don't feel sympathy towards corporations. And fr- frankly, you know, every single esports team to a certain degree has basically become m- many of them not regulated or not licensed to be so effectively become agencies. They're selling sponsorships against these creator bodies. And so, you know, you've got 10 creators on your roster and you want to sell ads against all of them. The creators are just happy because they're guaranteed, you know, a revenue share of that plus a flat cut. They can securely pay their bills every single month or whatever. They get that stability. But also, like a lot of those creators are capped on their upside, they they could make a lot more money if they did it themselves. It's just it's just a hustle to do it by yourself. So that that's what a lot of the modern day esports teams become. And and that feeds us into our last question. We'll end it up the show after this one, which is more broadly, this is from at person of content on Twitter, which is esports orgs were supposed to become analogous to professional sports teams, but they are actually media companies. Thoughts and implications of this frame. I mean, like I wrote in our, our in our outline, it's it's very much a mixed bag. Why is it that that an NBA team is able to make have their their players playing, practicing every day, playing multiple games a week, but then also doing ad spots and also having someone make bits of content it's it's extremely light they have so much staff they have so many people to do it and there is more than just the starting five like i'm a huge bulls fan our ads the the ads for for zenny optical or for for the car the uh, dealership system in in chicago those ads use usually one starter and a couple bench players. By comparison, in esports, you got your you got your starters, maybe one sub. That's it. Those those starters are playing non goddamn stop, and they are expected to also be able to do the deliverables and activations for for their ads for whatever their sponsors are. It's an immense immense fucking herculean effort for these players to be doing all of that all the time and so it's it is genuinely again a better investment for the the team to get an influencer who can lift that burden off 100% they truly have become to rely on content and my thoughts on this specifically are around valuations and this is a huge problem you know the way and we've talked about this on the show so i don't mean to be repetitive but the way that esports teams have valued themselves the way that they say what they're worth etc is they have said that they are worth 15 20x their revenues and 
you know, you look at the Forbes most valuable esports team list. I'm pulling it up right now. And you look at sort of, and these lists aren't 100% accurate, but they are like a pretty good barometer. You know, you look at something like TSM. TSM says it's valued at $540 million. TSM makes $56 million. 10x-ish, a little bit less than 10x. And you look at 100 Thieves, 100 Thieves says it's valued at $460 million, and it made $38 million in revenue in 2021. So that's 12x, 13x-ish. And you go down this entire list, and it's just become incredibly clear that all of these things are valuing themselves like they have something to sell. If one of these teams went under tomorrow, and maybe not 100 Thieves, maybe not FaZe, but, but maybe, if if... Let's use FaZe as an example, right? Because yeah, FaZe tried to say that they, were, that they were worth a billion dollars. Right? And, and now the market has said, no, you're, you're not worth a uh, billion dollars. You look at FaZe stock today, just pull it up. And FaZe's market cap is $160 million, according to the public markets, as of right now. And you go, all right, so FaZe, you're worth a billion dollars. What if, hypothetically, tomorrow, every single creator and all your founders walked out the door and told you, fuck off? Right? All of them. All your football players, all your basketball players, all the big popular streamers and, and TikTokers and whatever else that are on your brand. If they all told you to screw yourself, they walked out the door tomorrow. What does face what is face clan now? Without all those people. I mean at that it's point, face clan it's, a, it's logo. a logo and it's a a legacy of content that was made ten years ago. And so what? You can resell that content, you can sell the channels that it's published on that you own. And you could sell it for what? You know, let's you know do some raw math here. Probably sell it for, I don't know, if we want to be generous, $15, 20000000 million. Maybe. Well, you know, because like that's, how much? How much that's, that's again, high. being, being that's generous. very generous. Uh, the content library. But if you lose all your people, what are you? And so to put this into perspective, the reason that a tech company like an Apple or a Microsoft or any of the others could can be worth 15, 20, 25 times, whatever they make in any given year. The reason they can be so valuable is because if Tim Cook retires tomorrow as the CEO of Apple, guess what? Apple still has an iPhone. They have a patent to an iPhone. Apple still has an iPad. They have a patent to the iPad. They can continue to make those things. They could sell the blueprints on how they make them. Somebody else could go make iPhones and iPads with the secret sauce and the license to do so. That's super valuable. It's a consumer good. It's something that you can one-to-one make. And so the reason I mentioned this is because media companies, running one here myself, media companies are aggressively valued at five times revenue, but more traditionally valued at like two to three times revenue once they start going. But you've had all these esports teams go out there and raise all this money on 10, 15 times whatever they're making in any given year. And it just doesn't make any sense. And this is why you see like mid to late stage investors passing on esports. It's why you see things like Wrecked Global, who were the owners of Rogue or majority owners of Rogue, but recently, you know, it's why you see them merging with what was a pre-product metaverse SPAC in an all-stock deal where no one involved got cash. Why did they do that? Because there was no other way for them to make money. There was no other way for them to sustain. This pre-product metaverse SPAC has some cash. It has the ability for them to keep running as a business, but nobody there made money. None of those investors make money. You know, you look at like 
the only exception to these rules is when they're again they're selling to these like very national fan base driven creator businesses in Spain, Heretics and Koi, who are able to go great. Well, we have X number of millions of Spanish fans behind us. We have Ibai in the case of Koi. We have Ibai who is the biggest non-English speaking streamer on Twitch. And he's pumping our esports matches and co-streaming them and everything else every single fucking week. Great. Ibai's great. And without him, his brand would also be nothing. But truly, truly, that's the value proposition here. And so, you know, you're getting to the point where like all these teams are going to have to figure it out. They're going to have to take down rounds. They're going to have to lower their valuations. It's not going to be pretty. We're already seeing it a little bit. Just people aren't talking about it. They're afraid to talk about it. They're afraid that it will hurt the industry. Yeah, I. So you said TSM was valued at 540. Yeah, TSM was valued at 540 and they made 56. How much of that is the 210 that just evaporated from FTX? True. Yeah, that was uh, uh, on average, I think, 21 million dollars in revenue for them. Like I. I'm I'm very skeptical of of web3 stuff. I think it's it's fair to be especially right now. If 210 million dollars of of valuation can just evaporate overnight basically. I'm not going to look at any of those big numbers with any respect. I'm not going to give them any any sort of credence. I'm not going to give them the time of day. And and realistically, any org is going to have to be able to prove that they've they've built a product that is that is valuable that can be sold. And like, it, I think that I want to make sure that that it's clear. Product doesn't necessarily have to mean a physical thing. Like we are seeing, Correct. we are seeing. I think liquid. Cloud Nine, uh, actually, I don't even know who who else is doing this, but they have these uh, like fan clubs, paid fan clubs, where where you're getting access. That is a product. That's totally valid. That is not a sustainable business that makes fifty six million dollars a year or whatever it is. And even even if. Like the idea of if if all your players leave, that dies immediately. If if Team Liquid tomorrow said, actually, we have a team of five players no one's heard of. Every person, or, or so probably upwards of ninety percent of the fans that are on Team Liquid Plus is, I think, what the service is called. If if they're not able to to directly interact with their favorite players they're they're out they're done yep this is this is where the the content thing becomes so important because the expectation is that we are building these relationships as, as a fan with with our favorite players with our favorite team owners what have you and if if that fan if that player that that team owner leaves that player moves to a different team whatever that fan is totally unengaged they're done and so and i hope someone at liquid c9 tsm whatever listens to this when you're building these things out you got to make sure 
that is what you're you're trying to solve. How can you make a a content pipeline with people that they can come and go, but the content itself is evergreen? How can you make that pipeline profitable? There are a handful of 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 content streams that I think do it well. Like I would say that that hot ones, the the interview show with Chris Evans, that's a great one. I I think Chris Chris Evans can sometimes be an insufferable interviewer. I think his guests can be really disinteresting to me. The content concept of just torturing someone and asking them hard sometimes personal questions, that's evergreen. That will always work. That will always be profitable. Any advertiser will look at that and say, that's, that's something I can make money off of. That's somewhere where I can place my branding and of the 10 million people who watch it in the first couple months or whatever, if less than 1%, if half a percent converts, that's still 500,000 people. And even if, even if we're doing click-through, 500,000 people click the link and 1% of that comes through, that's what? Still 50,000 50, people? No, 5,000 5, people. people. That's 5,000 5, purchases. If your product, if that branding was, was $100,000 and your product is $100, you've just recouped all of it. On 5,000 conversions on a less than 1% click-through for your link. Any gaming org has to make evergreen content streams that they can keep doing. It has to be always on. That's In, in this space, if you're not doing always on as your, as your profitable content stream, you're... you're not profitable it's not working correct yeah and it, it's truly just to kind of book in this topic truly harkens back to what we've been talking to the entire time is that the viewer expectation is a personal connection to people and whether that's a player that they like whether that's a creator that they watch building a company brand that they are tied to the company for any audience under the age of 30 is so, so difficult. And when you identify what works for you, you have to stay in a lane. So we'll end with this clip, Judy Cinderella, where she talks about, you know, she's a huge League of Legends fan, huge esports fan. I don't remember the last time she played a game on stream because she just doesn't because they, you know, she's become sort of the variety streamer that bakes in her kitchen or just sits there and chats the camera. And that's her thing. And she's talked about that and reflected on it a lot. So here's the clip from Cutie. In terms of making the choice to go from, you know, streaming video games very specifically yeah. to doing sort of more diversified content, baking or just chatting or whatever it may be. Why is that? Why have you like not tried to do more gaming content? That and what's the decision behind that? Is simply the viewership. Um, it is I still play quite a bit of games like I play you could look at my league I still have many many hours in league I've played I'm really into Parkitect I go through Parkitect phases and I played a lot of Parkitect the other day um 
I will try to save gaming for the end of my stream so then the plummet doesn't hurt my soul as much. Um, but it's just that annoying numbers game that every streamer plays. You know, if I'm in just chatting, um, doing something high energy for a YouTube video, I will have more viewers. And then once I switch to the game, they drop. Um, and so that's why it's not due to that one's not due to passion or happiness because I love, I love, I could play League of Legends for 20 hours a day and I could do that on stream every day if my viewership would um, uh, stick with it, but they they will not, they will not do that. <laughs> I think that says it all. Right? Like yep. it tr truly, the, the audience cares about the people. And when you start playing a video game, when you start focusing on the game, they zone out. They really want to be connected to the personality. Yeah. It, I mean, it's a uniquely Western gaming culture problem. Because you can play games in, in, in China and Korea and that'll, it'll perform. I, without having done the research, I'd be willing to bet that the, the split from just chatting as it pertains to Western audiences versus Eastern audiences is at least 75, 25. Yeah, I agree. It's, uh, it's crazy how, you know, when Twitch first launched, just Justin TV, it was the original website. So much of the content had nothing to do with gaming. Gaming became the most popular vertical on the website. But then it was no longer the most popular vertical on the website anymore. Gone back to exactly what. Yeah, it went back to exactly what we were thinking it would be into just chatting. And I think that, as we mentioned earlier, it started with someone like Ninja started with this culture shift in 2018 and i think as you know the pandemic just accelerated it didn't accelerate esports it accelerated people inside looking for a personal connection and they found it in these internet celebrities who are easy to reach you can tweet at them you can be in their twitch chat you can do whatever else you can connect with them extremely easily and that's where they went that's where it went and so uh yeah i i think that really says it all <laughs> it's a good way to end the pod um Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. This is a bonus episode. We are going to be back on Friday with Anthony Fantano, a inter traditional interview in our style. So please come back to listen on Friday. Thank you for listening to this. Again, if you are, if you listen to the intro, you're back here again. Please, please, please give us a review on Apple Podcast. It is super, super helpful. Please listen to the advertising throughout this podcast and after. Thank you so much, Prime, for joining me. And thank you, everybody, for listening.